0: Hello and welcome to the Meaningfulistic Podcast. I am your host, Gabriel Gonzalez, and I am asking questions about what matters to who and why in the deepest, most personal sense. This is an exploration to find deep meaning at the intersection of the secular and the sacred, the artistic and the scientific. Topics will revolve around the meaning at the center of psychology, religion, and philosophy. The meaningfulistic is the both and of the yin and yang of what it means to be. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with someone who is a maestro of synergy, Steve Thomason. Steve embraced his God-given artistic talent and his passion for ministry and combined them into art theology, that is art and theology. His illustrations and animations have helped others to understand complex ideas and make them easy to remember and teach to others. He is the creator of A Cartoonist's Guide to the Bible. Steve Thomason is an Associate Professor of Spiritual Formation and Discipleship at Luther Seminary, a post-evangelical, missional, neo-Lutheran theologian rostered in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and an artist. And to say artist last is burying the lead. He is a professional digital illustrator, animator, and painter. He continually creates visual, innovative, educational material for the missional church and anyone seeking to grow in the love and grace of God. He writes and draws about spiritual formation, Biblical Studies, Theology, and Art. I stumbled upon his vast catalog of work while searching for an image to complement the book The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by American Social Psychologist Jonathan Haidt. We talk about this more in the episode, so I hope you will enjoy the conversation. This is Art Theology with Steve Thomason. Okay, Steve Thomason, thank you for agreeing to become a guest on the
1: Meaningfulistic
0: podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's Awesome.
0: So I I was very impressed with your website that I found serendipitously because I was trying to explain the uh, context of what was going on in his book, The Righteous Mind, how good people disagree over politics and religion. By Jonathan Haidt. Um, he, it was a lot of uh, psychology and sociology and philosophy and a lot of meat to that book. And it was kind of hard for me to grasp it. And even when I take notes, I try to doodle little uh, images of what I'm trying to understand. And I said, wait a minute, let me look for something because there has to be something about this elephant and rider and and how uh the the elephant is your your passions or your your instinctual drives and the rider is your like your 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 reasoning and thinking and so i was looking for a graphic to explain that i said like, well somebody had to have had some little graphic to explain that and then i saw yours and it was it was cute to be honest the elephant and the flower is a great image and then and then I saw this other stuff. I, I looked closer and I said, oh, wait, there's that little reference to Plato with the horse and the, and the chariot. And then there's that other reference. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of context in this one beautiful, illustrated, colorful infographic. So tell me more about how you came across the, the righteous mind.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's great. I, and I love the fact that that is how you found me. Yeah. in my work because I I love that infographic that I that I made just because I wanted to. Um, so I found that book because of a podcast that I listen to. I love listening to podcasts, so I'm mm-hmm. glad to be on yours. And I listen to um, Homebrewed Christianity is one of the podcasts I listen to uh, hosted by Trip Fuller. And he mentioned that book and it sounded really intriguing to me. And so I got the book. I like to listen to books while I'm driving. <laughs> and so I got the book. And I love how Audible has both the digital book and the audible book. How I mean, Kindle, like Amazon, so so you yeah. can switch between reading and listening seamlessly. That's just fantastic. So that's how I uh, read that book. I listened mostly listened to it, but then when you have the visual, you can go back and reference it. But I loved that book so much and it had, like you said, it had so much in it and it had so many visual references and imagery and metaphor I'm like, I got to draw this book. I just love doing it. And so, but that's how my brain works. Like I, I have to draw things in order to understand them because I am an artist and a theologian and I draw to learn. Okay. And so, and then I love sharing what I draw because then I hope other people can learn too by what I drew. And you're a great example of, of that because it's a great book. And mm-hmm. so like <clears throat> when I draw, I the images just stay in my head, right? So I can, I'm not even looking at it right now and I can see the elephant and the monkey and I can see the tongue with the six taste buds and I can see the keys, uh, you know, and I can see the little graphic of because you've got the liberal, conservative and libertarian and how they each have aspects of the six basic taste buds. But, you know, it's just, yeah, I can just right. see it all in my head and helps me remember so that when I'm telling other people about it, I reference it. So there's an interesting example of that. So so I have a PhD, and one of the things you have to do um, in the process of getting a PhD is you have to do comprehensive exams. Mm -hmm. And after you've done all your coursework, then you have to pass comprehensive exams before you're allowed to work on your dissertation. And the way my comprehensive exams worked is I had a bibliography of 100 books that I was responsible for, and then they, for four thursdays in a row so once a week every thursday they would lock me in a room for 8 hours with just a a word doc a blank word document no access to the internet and two questions and you have to write and so that's like 32 hours of just free writing and that's what comprehensive exams are like and so in order to prepare for those exams I actually created Elaborate Prezi's. Do you know what Prezi's are? No, I've never so, heard that. So Prezi is like a non-linear presentation software, and okay. uh, I've linked to all these on my website. But I created this Prezi that had a graphic representation of all my books, and then I like I drew all of the books that I was responsible for in the same way that I drew out that book, Righteous Mind, and I had all of my visual notes that I took in class. And I created this conceptual mind map for. I did one of those for each of the sections of my comprehensive exams, and so basically, I visually mapped out each field, so that when I sat down to write, I just, I literally just closed my eyes and talked through all of those graphics, those those uh, drawings, and and that's just how I ended up writing like 42 pages a, a week uh, in it was it as insane, but uh, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's, there you go. That's my brain.
0: No, that, <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Um, I've actually, it reminded me of uh, several instances of, of references. Well, one was, I think it was a Sherlock home episode. It was the TV series and a guy does that. He goes into this room and there's nothing in this room. And they think that there's a supercomputer in this room, but it's not, it's an empty room, just white lights. And he sits down and he closes his eyes and he goes in his mind, it's like a library. So mm. he envisions oh. going through this library, different sections of the library, and he goes and he knows what's on every shelf. And and he picks like a book. And that book is just a visual representation of what he knows what's inside that book.
1: I remember right? that episode.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, And I was like, man, I wish I could remember things that way. And I even have this other book and it's actually a theology book about memorizing the reasons. And, and it's talking about, uh, um, the cases for, uh, you know, Jesus's divinity or something about, uh, the baptism, what it means. And so what they did was in this book was, they used, I think, like the Sistine Chapel, and they said, Well, this is the pieta on one side, and you have this on the other, and this on the others on this wall, on this in this area, and this is on the ceiling. And they were doing that visually, representing different things with different objects in every room. And I and and I was, and I've also heard that also uh, like as, as you've used it as a memory device to completely articulate complex you know things visually or put it Mm -hmm. in a picture so you say that's your mind but that is a very efficient way of remembering things yeah Um, and one of the things that i saw so i guess we'll go like what what i love from your website was this art art theology and kateches so it was just
1: just say it like you have a (laughs) (laughs) list
0: yeah so art theology and and theology sketches putting these the art and the uh all the details you could put into summary instead of taking notes most people would try to just handwrite words instead of Mm -hmm. handwriting a bunch of words you've you've put this method into a collage and 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 an infographic that's very packed and Mm -hmm. dense yeah so i was i was surprised i was impressed one of the things that you mentioned on your website was uh that you didn't have a was a sermon on emotions uh, from the Good Life series. I didn't write a manuscript of the sermon. I simply drew a mind map and riffed off it for three services. How how and that's, yep.
1: how did you do that? <laughs> well, because um, that's a great question. I I've never really been a manuscript preacher. Um, so I've been a pastor for thirty years um in various contexts and when i preach i don't like to work off of a manuscript because it just seems too stiff you know i like to I like to feel like i'm having a conversation with the congregation right um and so one of the reasons i that i use powerpoint when i'm preaching is is i kind of see that as a storyboard and I go, I, I preach thought to thought, not word for word. And so each image or each part of an image, like if it, if you're doing a mind map, you know, a mind map is something that organically grows as you're thinking through something. And so it's kind of this feedback loop of of how I prepare, like I study the text visually. So if I'm preaching a scriptural text. I will do a visual study of the text uh, using a lot of different visual methods and mind mapping. Mind mapping is, is then how I think about integrating the text into my context, you know, and coming up with themes. And so as the mind map emerges, it's just this connection between my brain and my body because like I'm physically drawing something while I'm thinking and so your 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 body remembers it differently than if you're just purely in words. So I'll draw it out and and because I have the memory of how I drew it and where it is on the mind map, I can then just talk through it um, extemporaneously. So, you know, I rehearse the ideas, but I don't rehearse the verbatim because then that gets really weird because we write differently than we speak. And you can tell when somebody's reading a manuscript when they're preaching versus preaching based off of an outline. Right. Because they're going to speak more freely and less formally if they're just talking to the congregation. And so that's what I do. So a lot of times if I'm preaching, you know, I'll be, I'll skip, a, I'll get to the next slide. And I'm like, Oh, I forgot that part. And then I'll <laughs> say it's like, wait, hold on, hold on. Before I go into the next part, I got to make sure I remember this. And, uh, and people, I think people really respond to that um, right. as opposed to somebody getting up there and just droning on reading off their manuscript.
0: Right. Oh, for sure. So I'm Catholic. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the priests, I think they're, I don't know if they were told, but that they had to write before their sermon, but a lot of them, you know, they, they go to seminary and everything to become priests. They're not, they don't go to school to be toastmasters, right? They're not highly effective speakers. (laughs) And so some of the better, I mean, most of the better sermons are, that I've heard are those ones that seem extemporaneous. They have Mm -hmm. something that they have to say. They know what they want to say. And they're not actually so rigid and formal, and just droning on about theology, and, and you, know, have, yeah. you know, lose half of your listeners, or if if if, if that, might. but you know, um, I
1: I don't know if I don't know if you saw this on my website or not, but, um, last summer, summer of twenty two, I actually had a book published called The Visual Preacher, okay, uh, was- p- published by Fortress Press, and. it's all about this it's it's about um so it's it's part of a series of um from what's called the working preacher uh working preacher is a website um and i am currently a lutheran pastor but i spent most of my life in the evangelical world you know and evangelicals are all about the preaching and all about preaching well and preaching this extemporary so i learned how to preach in that context where it really is all about the personality, which that can on the other end of the spectrum can be is equally dangerous, okay. you know? And so, uh so I'm kind of in the middle now in, in the Lutheran world, but okay. um Lutherans tend to be a little drier and I'm kind of a shock to most Lutheran congregations when I show up and preach. <laughs> oh, I, I saw But the idea of, your... of the, the idea of the book is, um, like, if you're interested in the actual mechanics of how to think visually, because the first half of that book is how to actually study the text visually and how to write a sermon visually. And then the second half of the book is how to present something visually. And knowing that a lot of my audience wouldn't have access to projection or screens, I talk a lot about how to be a visual preacher in an analog world right where it's just you and like a more traditional worship space but you can be a highly visual preacher without projecting images on a screen
0: yeah that's fascinating so you're describing what you're seeing in your mind and i think on that end is is that what you're saying
1: well that's one way like storytelling right is definitely i think a form of visual preaching okay and but that's there's other books that were written about that. And so I was actually just talking specifically about using visual elements. Okay. Like having an object that okay. you refer to, even how you move around the room. You know, you don't have to stand behind the pulpit to preach. If you have a microphone if you have a microphone, you don't you know pulpits were invented because they didn't have amplification. So pulpits, the reason pulpits exist is because they needed to get the speaker up above the crowd so that their voice could be projected through the through the room and heard in the back row. That's why we have pulpits. And then we, we sacralized pulpits and made them something, you know, <laughs> like you have to be in a pulpit. Right. Well, you don't. If you have a microphone, I can walk anywhere in the room and whisper and everybody can hear me clearly. You know, and so it just breaks up. So that's what I mean. Just like visually you can move around um, and just, and even using objects that are in the room and, and connecting people's ideas. Like if you stand at the altar and connect an idea to the altar and then go to the baptismal font, connect an idea there, or I, I will sometimes draw on canvas or paint on canvas while preaching, or bring in a piece of art and talk about it. Um, or like one time I did, I brought in a table and a, and a pot and potting soil and a, and a sprinkling can and, and just did an object lesson using these physical objects. Or sometimes I'll bring the people in the congregation up on the platform and and have them interact with me. It's all just this visual um kinesthetic it's really kinesthetic learning right because mm-hmm. when people people learn through it's this is what righteous mind was talking about that we remember through emotion and we believe through intuition not through reason and so as a communicator if you can connect your ideas to an emotional or a visual it's going to become stickier in people's memory right so like they'll remember when that little kid got up on the platform with the pastor and did jumping jacks or, you know, whatever it is, like that'll stick in their memory. Right. So that book was kind of dense for me. I I was just
0: trying to understand it, but I didn't think of that practical application of how can I use this? And you found a way to say, you know what, there are those things. I think one of the big ones was disgust, Mm -hmm. Uh, the big emotions that if you can discuss someone, which I think was what a lot of people do nowadays is, you know, shock people into clicking, On things um, Mm -hmm. that you can use, you can teach them something or get them to do something based off of that emotion, based off Mm -hmm. of that core emotion, and it sticks because our memory remembers that that emotion uh, or it's linked with that emotion. So you're you're giving you're giving an emotion, but you're giving them information that will stick with them.
1: Yeah, and it's and that's why like movies are so powerful because they have soundtrack, Mm. right like you paint a picture in a movie with the music and the sound effects are as important, if not more important than the visual, you know? So, so I studied film in college. I was, I wanted to be an animator. So getting into my life story, you know, that's, that's my first love, not my first love. It was, it's one of my passions is uh, animation and filmmaking and storytelling.
0: Right. Yeah, so I did listen, I did a brief re- overview of your story, which I'm really glad that you have your bio on your website and even have an infographic for that, for your yep. timeline, <laughs> which I, I was like, wow, I need to do an infographic of my timeline of my life <laughs> so I could really see like the transitions that you have in your life. I mean, that's narrative therapy. In psychology, it's what what was going on in your childhood? What happened when you were a teenager? What was going on in your mind when you were in your early 20s? What things, how did that trickle effect happen to this your story arc of your life? The thing that I picked up from your story was you seem to be juggling this art, religion, art, religion, and how much they kind of uh, interplayed with each other. Did you ever feel like it was a either or choice in your life?
1: Oh, yeah absolutely i've had when i when i tell my story that's a big part of it is the toggling back and forth cuz the way i introduce myself it well whenever i'm with a new crowd i always tell a really corny joke and i say what do you get when you take a baptist a cartoonist and a lutheran and blend them all together mm-hmm. it's like we well, get me and uh i've always had those two passions like i've been an artist as long as i can remember And when I was a little kid, I drew like every other little kid. I just never grew up. You know, like I just kept drawing. And because I think drawing is a sense of wonder. And drawing is a form of exploration of the world. And so I've just always been drawing. But but I knew like a a switch flipped in me in fourth grade. My drawing started really getting good in fourth grade. And then I got really excited. And my dad is, he was never a professional artist, but he is a gifted artist. And so when he saw that in me as a fourth grader, um, he like went up to the attic and got all his old art. He did the uh, mail order uh, famous illustrators art course when in the 1950s, you know, and he still had all of those books. And I, as a fourth grader, I just read them all, you know. And I was always in like special pull out art classes and in elementary school, I was in the gifted and talented program and, and you get to do whatever you want. Right. So I was always, I've always been encouraged by those adults around me to be creative and to not be shy about it. So that was really cool. So I've always been an artist. Mm -hmm. And I, in high school is when I really decided I wanted to become an animator. Um, And I'm a pastor's kid, and I've grown up in the church my whole life. And because of my dad, like it's never been religion. It's never been an external ritualistic obligation for me. I've always, like I've never known life without understanding God as a relational God. Like I can be in relationship with God in spite of the craziness of the church. Mm-hmm. God is beyond the church. God is more than the church, and that's always been part of my DNA. Um, and but but because I'm a learner, you know, when I was was and I was in high school, I was really conflicted my senior year because I had, I had all of these options in front of me because I've always been a good student. I've always I've always been um, very grateful for the fact that things tend to come easily to me. Like I can pick up language quickly. I try something. I'm typically pretty good at it. Right. When I saw, except for softball, I'm terrible at (laughs) softball, but, um, but I did like, I was an athlete. I was a starter Mm -hmm. on the football team and I was one of those kids that my senior year, I was the starting defensive end and I had a lead in the musical, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm like that weird I've always been this weird blend of very, of very disparate worlds um, across the board. So as I was graduating from high school, my options were I could be a pastor. I could be a Wycliffe Bible translator. I could be a, cause I loved linguistics and I had made friends with some uh, missionary translators. And I was intrigued by just getting out of the United States and going and learning a, tribal language you know that sounds so interesting to me or being like a bible professor that kind of academic route or being an animator and going and studying film and and pursuing that whole track like those were the, the big options and they were all viable options for me so where do you go to school to do all that and so I I uh I dragged my feet too long and I I was looking at, you know, some of the big Christian schools like Biola and Wheaton and um, Westmont and some of the, because I was an evangelical kid and those were like the, the good evangelical schools, but they're expensive, super expensive. And so I ended up going to Moody Bible Institute for one year because it was really cheap. And, and there I learned very quickly I didn't want to be there because like I had a professor who actually said that art was pornography, you know, like the, cause a big part of drawing is figure drawing, you know, right. and like, I right. love drawing the human figure and like, well, that's just pornography. What? Wow! And it's like, you don't understand art at all. So yeah. it, anyway, that was not a very great space for me to be an artist, but, um, I went to Wheaton college where I did double major and I was a biblical studies major and an art major. And so I tried to live in both worlds. Um, but then I had a little, I actually just wrote about this in a blog post yesterday, but I had this little crisis of of faith um, where I, I decided I didn't wanna be a pastor. And so I, I just shut down that whole part of my world. So this is getting to your question, like either or. It really became either or for me. It's like, you either gotta choose ministry or you gotta choose art. And so as I graduated from college, uh, I chose art and I was drawing caricatures for a company in the amusement park and they, they offered me a job to manage their brand new business in Las Vegas. And so I, I went to Vegas and um, for six years in Las Vegas, I was full on artist I was managing an art company, uh caricatures, airbrush t-shirts, portrait artists. But what I really wanted to do was become a Disney animator. And so like I'd drive down to LA as often as possible and I actually got a personal tour of the Burbank studios from one of the animators and um I was really really into it. But then we started having children and oh, yeah. bought a house, you know, and and I was making good money at this company. And so like that dream to go to Disney suddenly became off the table because I would have had to drag my kids and my, my wife and my children into poverty. Um, so I, I wasn't willing to sacrifice my family to be an animator. So I was kind of lost for a little while. Um, and we were at this really dynamic church. And as soon as I got to this church, I just became a super volunteer, right? So I was teaching classes and I was a part of the youth ministry and teaching adult classes. And it took God a a few years to get through to me that my actual calling was ministry. But uh, in 1994, that's when I realized, oh yeah, I am actually called to ministry. So at that point, I, I did feel the pressure to actually shut down my artistic self. Mm-hmm. So like I swung from full on artist to now over in this side, now I'm trying to become this particular type of church leader in this dynamic evangelical megachurch that's just growing, 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 but has a certain type of leader that it respects and being a cartoonist doesn't mm-hmm. factor into that. Mm-hmm. And so I really tried to deny that part of me for a while which ended up not being a great idea. And it what I what, in 1998 I had this horrible thing happen to me and I was really crushed by it and my first response was to pick up my oil paints and to start painting. And that's that's when the art theology really started coming together because I realized I can't do life without art, and so in 2002 we left that big mega church and we started a house church ministry. And it was really at that point where the fusion started playing nicely together because I was self—I was you know basically a tent maker. So being an illustrator and animator was how I made money. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I got the like I was fully immersed in the art world commercial art world and i was leading this experimental house church thing but the way i did that was that i started illustrating scripture to help people because we we didn't have preaching because we're house church right and what we did was we committed to reading through scripture together during the week and we'd show up in our house churches on sunday morning and just ask so what did god teach you this week mm-hmm. Um, and so what I would do is I, I was, always, I would always be a week ahead of everybody else. And I would do this little like study guide for the text that they were reading. And part of my study guide was I did a cartoon illustration that would try to summarize the, the text for that week, which was usually a big chunk of, of scripture. And that's how Cartoonist Guide to the Bible started. Like after five years of doing that, I had hundreds of illustrations. And so I put them on my website and I created the Bible bookshelf and all that stuff. So that's how those things have fused together. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's like in the 90s, it basically was, I felt this either or battle, but that's just me trying to figure out who I am. So after 2002, it really started working well. And then I illustrated my way through my PhD. Right. Yeah. I, I was reading about, I guess from your
0: website, I, I saw all these images. I saw, went to your YouTube channel and I saw your uh, I guess, fly throughs or work throughs of, of how you do the coloring. You do a lot of the, the animation. I was I was impressed with all of that. And I said, okay, let me see if I could stump this guy. <laughs> I was thinking, I said, uh, let me see what he how he drew the Trinity. And then I and then I saw, oh well. He did his doctoral thesis, or or your, uh, you know, on the Trinity, and I said, "Wow, this is interesting." (laughs) So, so this relational ontology, your dissertation on social Trinity, and you did a series of of illustrations. How did? Wow, what made you want to choose to tackle, or how did you use? I guess we'll say, how did you use those illustrations in your
1: PhD? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, there were multiple questions there, so right. I'll try to blend them together. So how did I... I'll start with wh- why I chose my particular research question. So when you're getting a PhD, so my my discipline, the field that I got it in, is called uh, Congregational Mission and Leadership. So it's by nature, it's interdisciplinary. So we were drawing from sociology and theology and missiology. And, and because I was particularly interested in spiritual formation in adults, I also drew from, um, you know, pe- pedagogy, adult learning, like how do, how do adults learn, and which delves into developmental psychology and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I've got all of these disciplines that I'm trying to bring together, and I wasn't quite sure how to focus it. But what happened was I had a personal experience in a course I was taking that was called Trinity and Mission. And one of the core theological frameworks for a missional imagination of the church is this idea that in the mid-20th century was called um, Social Trinity, which really most often associated with uh, Jürgen Moltmann and his his understanding of of the triune nature of god and others bunch of germans <laughs> continental philosophy coming into conversation with orthodox uh, theology but as as i was sitting in a course with my professor gary simpson and he was talking about the social trinity and i was and because i knew i was interested in spiritual formation i did a paper on social trinity and spiritual formation and in the process of doing that research actually had a transformative experience where it changed the way that i think about spirituality and spiritual formation Um, because as a descendant of white western christianity we have this particular way that we understand god as you know, the spatial distinction of God is up there and we're down here. You know, I can go into deep in the weeds and all that, but where one of the arguments in this whole social trinitarian thing is that because Western Christianity was co-opted by Platonic dualism, you have this idea of the perfection of God being above the line and like all of created things being progressively corrupt below the line and the scripture shows three persons right father son and holy spirit and so the the perennial question is how can you be three in one and how can jesus be both god and human if god is unchanging and and omnipotent and all of the immutable and all those things well part of what the 20th century conversation around social trinity was breaking down that platonic dualism and understanding that what if that's just wrong? Like the the universe isn't dualistic, and that God is—it's really panentheism, right? That God is at work in the universe, and the universe is part of God, and like, and that the three persons of the Trinity are the relational dynamic of reality, and all that kind of stuff. So that that vertical to horizontal and process kind of theology really changed how i understood it what it really did was it brought my experience of a relational god into alignment with an actual theology that can that doesn't seem like oh i just have to i have to believe this doctrine over here that actually doesn't make sense in my experience but now my experience has a doctrinal um it's coherent I don't know if that makes sense because, like I said earlier, like I've always understood God as relational, but this social trinity actually makes God relational. And that relationship is the very substance of, uh, essence of, of being, right? And it moves from substantive theology, ontology to a relational ontology to get all nerdy about it. Oh. Um, and so, so I had that experience. And so as I was thinking about a research question, I just wondered, am I the only one that would have that particular experience? Or I wonder if like, just normal Lutherans sitting in the pew, if they were exposed to this idea of social trinity, would it impact them at all? And how would it impact them? And so I had to come up with a way to get after that question and my advisor uh turned me on to what's called participatory action research um paulo freire and 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 the um it was it's really what liberation theology is based on and uh, helping people that are in uh disparate situations helping them to actually take agency in their own context. And through participatory action, you can actually make change in the world. And that's what participatory action research is. And so, I chose that as my methodology for my dissertation. And so, so my challenge was, how do I increase the awareness and understanding of social trinity in everyday people, Particularly, you know, you have to limit your scope in a, in a research project. So I limited it to um, suburban Lutherans because mm-hmm. I was also interested in the suburban context. And so I thought, well, I the most efficient way that I can think of to expose people to this is through my giftedness, which is animation. And so I came up with four short animated films that. all together only run for 20 minutes total. And they're not really animation. They're more like animatic uh, storyboards, you know. Mm. But what I did was I posted, so I formed my research group, and I posted these videos online. And I asked people to watch them before we met. And then we watched them together, and we did a lot of discussion groups around them and we processed it and that was a part of my research project and then it was a nine-month project and so you know and it's all qualitative so i i had them journaling i had them come up with action projects that they did in their own context and i had to, i had to transcribe thousands of pages of data into my computer uh, audio files and to to transcribe them but um so that's why i did it and that's why those four little videos exist and and so but they're out there so anybody can watch them and i've i've had you know people say that they've watched them but even before that what was interesting is similar to your experience with the righteous mind book i was studying robert keegan's Developmental psychology and his theory of the five orders of consciousness, and his book, uh, The Evolving Self and In, In Over Our Heads, which are really, really dense books, and a lot of people struggle with them. And so I'm like, I got to wrap my head around this. And so I created a video that was uh, me just talking, but visually trying to process. And I did that so that I could understand Keegan's theory. And and I posted it on. It was one of the very first uh, uh, videos I ever put on my YouTube channel. And Keegan himself called me, wow, and asked if I would do some work for him. And I told him no because I was doing my dissertation and I didn't have time. Okay, (laughs) but but um, but people have said that you know a lot of. If you read the comments on that particular video, a lot of people have said, you know, I've been my my professor's been trying to explain this to us for hours and hours and hours. And I watched your 13 minute video, and it makes sense to me now. And I'm like,
0: yeah, that's, yeah.
1: So that's pretty cool. But that was so, like, thir- that was like, uh, I think I made that video in 2011. So did Keegan actually validate what you were,
0: were expressing? Oh yeah, in the- he's oh. like,
1: that was great, man. Oh, I'm working on a new project, and can you come and illustrate it for us? Okay, yeah. <laughs> i mean that that would be the immediate
0: thing is is anybody who's creating something especially with their, when they're working on their book or something is 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 that is this going to connect is this going to resonate and then you have someone like yourself who said not only does it resonate i know a way to make this teachable
1: mm-hmm. so
0: you've distilled it into a infographic or an animation and it's teachable and of course there's all these other i think the bible project which is going through the books of the Bible. I like it. Whatever I'm a I have super
1: it. fan, by the way, yeah. of the Bible project. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I reference it when I'm trying to explain something in my uh, church classes. And I said, hey, if you have a question, just go to this. It'll explain yep. it. It's good enough. And then you can go back and read the Bible and figure it out. Um, also, um, there's apps now that they, that they're saying, don't need to read the book. Just get the short version. This is the 10-minute version. Uh, and it will do it infographic with, uh, you know, just – get our subscription and give us money and and, then you can learn it the easy way
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i don't think you should study the bible that way but (laughs) right but that's
0: fascinating that you're able to connect and also teach it and um that's what i love about your your work and what you do oh thanks Um, so there was a lot of information in those four uh social trinity uh Mm -hmm. videos and i thought that like you said, they might be short, but it doesn't mean that they're really and they're they're easy to understand. But it but there's those are the type of things that you would want to watch over and over and over. They and say, are well, packed let, with yeah, info. Yeah, let me get this. Let me get this. And I've also heard your reference uh, at my in church. You know, you have the vertical thing, and I think a lot of people think God in that vertical pillar much too often and and we we have that horizontal beam and we we illustrate that with you know a representation of the cross. You have a vertical mm. beam and a horizontal beam. And the horizontal beam is a, what I think a lot of people are missing in when they religion, when they say, oh, I'm not religious because what they're really saying is, I don't believe in hierarchical churches. I don't believe in authority. I don't believe in having a filter between me and God. I want to relate on God or spirituality on my own term horizontally and and experientially. Correct. So I think again, uh, that's why a lot of what you're saying and a lot of that idea of a social Trinity resonates with me and my Mm -hmm. spirituality also.
1: Absolutely. It's interesting that you say that because just this week, I gave a presentation on yet another book, uh, a book called The End of Theological Education by Ted Smith. And I was asked, because now I'm a professor at Luther Seminary, right? So I haven't been, I don't work in the local church anymore. So for the last, well, starting in August of last summer, I've been a professor, uh, you know, in a, in a seminary faculty and also creating content. So like I get to do these things full time all the time I'm creating content all the time for Faith Lead Academy and so I was invited to do a book review and presentation on this book The End of Theological Education and of course I drew it all and um I'm just about to post that on my on my blog yesterday I posted something that was highly visual as well called Faith after deconstruction, but it really talks a lot about what you're talking about is the, the 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 shift from foundationalism of modernity, which baked into that is this hierarchy of being, right? Into this late modern world, where which is much more. Uh, influenced by quantum mechanics and the uncertainty of and the interrelational nature of the universe. So the shift from the universe as a mechanism to the universe as a mycelial network as a as a organic whole, right? And that's all wrapped into this theological shift and understanding uh, God and our relationship with God in this network, this life web, right? Instead of this dualistic, mechanistic dualism. And so, all of that is an important thing that we need to have in our mind. And so, I've drawn multiple pictures of that shift. And so, if you look at that post now, you can see that there's multiple illustrations that try to talk about that shift and how frightening it is when you're Origin, your your worldview of origin gets uh, fractured or even obliterated. You know, which which I argue in that post is just a natural part of human development. Uh, we that deconstruction and reconstruction is just part of growing up and part of life. Right, um, it's a cycle. But my point is that uh, I've illustrated these things, and when I I post my PowerPoints on SlideShare. And so the presentation for the book is already out there on SlideShare, but I just haven't actually constructed my blog post yet where I, where I talk about the book. And so it's the visual book review. So there's a whole section of my website that is just visual book reviews, um, which that, is how you found me in the first place. <laughs> right, right. We've come full and, circle.
0: And when you say deconstruction, um, what do you mean? You said of origin?
1: Yeah, it's so like everybody grows up with a worldview. Like our everybody, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a filter, a lens through which we make sense out of reality. You can't not have that. That's just part of being human. And your worldview of origin is what's constructed for you by the adults that raise you. They they don't necessarily intentionally do that. It just you know it's your culture what you grew up with and everybody has a sense of what is how the world works you know if you grew up with um, you know drug addict parents who were panhandling on the sidewalk and that's how you grew up then that's just reality for you like that's your worldview i mean everybody has a way that they understand and there 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 comes a point in everyone's life where they are encountered by the other by a different worldview. And depending on what your worldview is like, like like me, I grew up where I just understood everything and I knew what was right and what was wrong and everyone else was wrong and I was right. You know, (laughs) it's this perfect worldview. Well, as soon as you realize, oh, wait a minute, those other people, they actually have really good arguments and they actually make more sense than some of mine than... (laughs) like the foundation that you think your world is built upon starts to crack. Um, and a great metaphor for that is kind of like when Copernicus first saw that there were wobbles in the universe, right? Well, that was the beginning of the crumbling of a medieval world. Um, well, that happens on a personal level, right? Everybody has the wobbles in their own worldview. And so that's what I mean by deconstruction and That's a terrifying thing, especially if your worldview tells you that you are right with God and you know your eternal destiny. And if you change your mind, you will be lost. Mm. You know, you're that's terrifying. Mm. And so and you're in psychology and and counseling, right? So you're, you're helping people navigate these things all the time. So that's what I mean.
0: All right. No, I think it's as funny as like existential crisis in, in a sense mm-hmm. is a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. And and mm-hmm. I think it would be better if people would have them sooner. Yes. I, I was listening to a podcast um, and this guy was a psychologist and he said, you know, this, this girl, she was like 21 years old and she, she came into my office and she was having all these existential issues. And he's like, this is great. <laughs> and, you know, for her, it probably doesn't feel that well, but, but, to be yeah. honest, to to be challenged with that worldview uh, deconstruction of you know asking yourself is this all there is? Um, is this is there more to life than this? Um, mm-hmm. Or or more importantly, I'm starting to realize the things that I believe in are nothing or wrong or shallow, unfounded, or, or harmful you know, even sometimes harmful. Yeah. Especially in the case of, of religion, like we're talking about, you know, in that, you know, if you change, if you change from this church, well, you're lost, you're right. going to hell. um there's, right. no, there's no hope for you. And I, and I think a lot of people turn away from religion because they think it's like that it's mm-hmm. in or out.
1: Yep. <laughs> and some religions are.
0: They explicitly state
1: that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of good reasons for people to leave organized religion. Um, unfortunately, hmm. that's uh, true. That's, but that's that ho- cognitive dissonance that occurs, you know, with your existential crisis. I I agree wholeheartedly. Is that it? It's necessary, and it should come earlier. And in the post that I just uh, did yesterday, in this deconstruct this faith after deconstruction, actually, I have a whole section in there of some visual visuals that I made for ninth graders because as I, in the Lutheran tradition, you take kids through confirmation and in our ninth grade year of confirmation training, uh, I would take them through a, a, a unit called my neighbor's faith and trying to help trying to prepare them to be good, you know, citizens of the world. How do you, how do you stay Christian and not be a jerk? and and actually learn from your neighbor's faith. How do you do that? And so I talked about the deconstruction and you can look at those visuals, right? So some people like hunker down and try to kill people or other people just blow up and into what I call nihilistic goo, right? Where it's like, oh, there's no truth. There's nothing right. is real. So do whatever you want. And there's a middle ground between those two responses. <laughs>
0: So is there a little bit of uh, is that like comparative religion?
1: Yeah, it's comparative religions. Uh, yeah, and it's, multi
0: ha- multicultural awareness. Absolutely, with-
1: interfaith interfaith dialogue is what I like to call it. Yeah, oh, uh,
0: I've been I've been dying to get a, into one of those conversations. I haven't had one yet. I don't have a, a round table of sorts of a you know a Jewish, a, a Buddhist, a Sikh, uh, yeah, you know, different variations of Christians. I would yeah, love to that'd be great. So your website has the title, uh, subtitle, Following the Cloud. What does that mean?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that has been like my life tagline for a really long time. And the reason it it comes from two key narratives in scripture. One is the Exodus story where God led the Israelites through the wilderness in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So they were literally following the cloud. And they didn't know where the cloud would go. And you know, they knew that they were going to the promised land. So like, imagine this, if you're, if you're exiting Egypt across the Red Sea, you're heading east. Well, the promised land is to the north. But the cloud went south into the wilderness. Like, what? <laughs>
0: what? I have thought about that. You got to follow change. the
1: cloud. I thought you were taking us to the land of milk and honey, and you're taking us out into the nothingness to Mount Sinai, right? Just yeah. a desert rock. So that's one story. And then another story is um, the story of when Paul, the apostle Paul in Acts, um, he's on his second missionary journey and he, he wants to go to Ephesus. It says Asia, but I'm just assuming he wants to go to Ephesus because Ephesus was the most logical place to build a center of operation because it's like the hub, right? I mean, that's where Constantine eventually built Constantinople, right? It is like the literal hub of the Mediterranean basin. So he wants to go to Ephesus, but it says that the Holy Spirit prevented him from going. And so then he wants to go to Bithynia which is to the north and the Holy Spirit prevents him from going. So like the spirit is like putting up these guardrails, these blockades so that Paul will end up in Troas. Like who wants to go to Troas? Mm-hmm. But in Troas he has the Macedonian vision. And the Macedonian in his dream invites him to come across the sea into Macedonia and that's where he goes to To philippi and meets lydia where there's not even a synagogue in philippi Mm -hmm. right and so those two stories are kind of how i've tried to live my life where because i'm you know i'm a j on the myers-briggs and i've always tried to plan out my life and then god always has different plans it's like you know that's a nice plan but nope and doors close (laughs) or things blow up and eventually, like somewhere in the mid-90s, I realized, oh, I actually have to follow the cloud, which means I have to have a spirituality in which every day I wake up and die to the myth that I'm in control of my life, <laughs> and try to get into a space through My reading of scripture, my prayer, my wise counsel, all of these things, and ask the question, okay, what are we doing now, Lord? (laughs) Where is the cloud moving? And and what I didn't know in the mid-90s and what I have learned since then is uh, that's what some call a process theology, in that God is actually opening up the next moment and inviting us into it. I don't believe there is a plan. I don't believe God has a plan. I believe God has a promise and the promise is I'll be with you and we're going to work this out as we go. Right? And so that's that's what I mean by following the cloud.
0: That's good. And we work with we work with him cuz at least you're taking those steps in those in that direction.
1: Yes, I following the cloud means I'm not telling the cloud where to go right so and you're there, not staying there is put this, what's that and you're not staying put right unless the cloud is right because mm. you know like in the exodus story the cloud would move and then it would hover and be like mm. pitch the tabernacle here like okay so for right now you know like okay we're doing house church we did house church for five years and then it blew up and it was horrible i'm like well where's the cloud gonna go now well, the cloud moved to Minnesota, and we moved to Minnesota, and and so I've I, I never get settled. I don't find my identity in a particular place. I try to be faithful in wherever I am, but knowing that it could change.
0: Uh, that's a that's a beautiful life motto, and and it's also visual. Yes. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, I saw you, you've mentioned the, what is it? The visual preacher and you've done the four uh, books of the new Testament,
1: the gospels. Uh, Yep.
0: The gospels. Yeah. I was, I was, I I was joking with my wife. Did you do any copy pasting there in the uh, synoptic gospels?
1: You know, that it's funny you say that. And I get, I get what you mean, but I intentionally, drew Jesus differently in each gospel. Okay, Because each gospel is a unique portrait of Jesus. Mm. And each gospel writer actually is painting Jesus differently. They are not the same character in each gospel. And so I intentionally changed the character design of Jesus. And I changed uh, subtly but I changed like how I drew things from from book to book. Style. But I just finished Axe. Okay. I've got Axe's uh 43 page uh graphic novel. actually I did it over the summer. This is my um eight and a half by eleven like proof copy I just had printed at FedEx, but um the actual print book I have is isn't available yet, but all of this is online for free that you can you can read through it. Um, but, but I drew, you know, the first chapter has Jesus in it. And so since Acts is Luke part two, Mm -hmm. I, I did copy and paste the last panel of Luke Ah. and pasted it as the first panel of Acts so that visually you can, you can tell. So I literally copied and pasted that panel (laughs) so that you could tell, yep, this is the same story.
0: Bravo, nice. No, no, I'm a big fan of graphic novels. Um, I actually try to do the the you know the illustrated Bible series for my for my for my girls, my daughters, and uh, also have the, the 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 Revelation. They did a, a graphic novel, revel- a book of Revelation. It's kind of a lot more adult. Like, uh, it's not like
1: Marvel comics.
0: It, it, it's, it's um kind of more like painting. It's a lot of Photoshop and it's not a lot of action, right? It's more, Whoa. you know, visual, like kind of strange colors and, and you know, sweeping kind of uh, effects with uh, Photoshop. So it's interesting. Like it's
1: the amazing. acid trip that Revelation is.
0: Yes, yes, very <laughs> much. But it's good and it's very dark. It's just like almost solid black pages.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. That's it's cool. cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome.
0: So one of the things that uh, in closing that I I saw again, just recently on your website, was that you are you see yourself as continually being continually an artist, continually a pastor. Um, where do you see that going right now in your life?
1: Oh, well, like where's the cloud going next?
0: Yeah. Or I guess I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's just as long as you keep your eyes on it, that's where you're going, right?
1: Yeah. Where I'm going is um to quote one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite movies, Frozen Two. <laughs> Let's do the next straight thing. <laughs> nice.
0: Oh man! Well, it was it was a pleasure talking with you, Stephen. Uh, it's
1: I'm, great to meet you too, man.
0: Great, uh, great content. Great, uh, a lot of resources there, and I hope that more and more people will be able to look at your your visual art, your animations, and actually have some of those light bulbs go off in their heads and, and click. So. Um, just like me and the, the righteous mind, we don't really get things unless we can see it and we don't really remember it unless we recall that image. So I hope you continue your work and more people are exposed to it.
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate it. All
0: right. Thank you for being a guest on the Meaningfulistic podcast.